Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a podcast that showcases the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Thanks for choosing to spend some time with me again. I'm thrilled to bring you this episode of What's Your Why? Introducing Armand Lyon. If you feel like somewhere in the other regions of your brain you recognize this name, you'll not be surprised when I say, you're right. And if you're involved in the equine industry at all, you most likely do. Armand Lyon is the oldest of the brothers Lyon, which encompasses Peter and Mark after him, who have each led successful careers inside and outside of the equestrian sport. Armand has got more letters attached to his name than I can even count, holding a total of three postgraduate degrees from Columbia University Law School, New York Medical College, and Columbia Business School. In addition to those credentials, Armand wasted no time in continuing his equestrian career both on and off of horses. He was selected to represent the United States as an alternate on the equestrian team for the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. Armand was also a member of the FEI Tribunal, Vice President of High Performance on the USCF Board of Directors, Director, President, CEO, and then Chairman of the USET Foundation, and also part of the Conduct Committee for the United States Hunter-Jumper Association, or USHGA. Armand is a wealth of information, and given his knowledge around horses, he's found a niche advising and educating equestrian athletes, trainers, and owners to simply make the world a better place. Insightful, educational, and a pleasure speaking with, I ask you to please enjoy the past, present, and future with Armand Leone. I mean, I can't even rhyme off the list of degrees, accolades, accomplishments that you have. I went through and I found myself sort of researching the letters. So excuse my ignorance if I don't have all of that at the tip of my fingers, but uh, you have got a very long list of various skills. It's an amazing, amazing repertoire. Well, let's put it that sometimes I feel like an old thermometer. <laughs> I think it's what you learn out there, you know, on the ground working with people uh, in life to, and horses and all that and really, you know, being the big things that have put me where I am, I think. Perfect. I would love to ask you a little bit about your uh, your career, your decisions around your career, and then maybe talk a bit about some of your volunteerism and then maybe touch on your past with horses, if that's okay. Sure. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but the timeline of some of your significant life events seems to be competitive equestrianism, which led to medical school and then law school, and then a whole bunch of stuff in between. <laughs> At what point did you decide that law would be your ultimate career? Wow. Okay. That's kind of like the last part of the story, but I would say, that, I think, look, competitive riding, competitive school, competitive professions. I mean, competition uh, was something that I grew up with and maybe having two brothers close in age might have played into that a little bit. Okay. I think people can understand that. You know, initially I was very lucky. My parents lived in New Jersey. They had three sons. They were very supportive of their children. I guess I'd have to start with my mother, God bless her, was a city girl. and She married a country boy. So when she came out here to New Jersey, you know, she remembered she used to ride around Central Park with her dad. He used to be in the cavalry, World War One. Wow. So she took us for riding lessons. So we started riding. What we'll call riding at the local stable. Anyway, of course, from there, eventually my dad wanted to have a farm because he's the country boy. And he wanted cows. My wife said, oh, no, no, no. They're going to get cows. We've got to get ponies. And so back then, we started with, you know, a couple ponies. And we can go into that later. But got into the riding, got into, you learn about yourself. Then later got into the more competitive side of riding, which is its own little story. But that preparation for training for performance expertise that you developed riding and the way you approach life has certainly stuck with me as I approached medical school, as I approached law school, all the things I've approached, and even today, big matters. So I would say that the fundamentals of learning 
about horses and about competitive preparation and riding helped me to prepare competitively for life. And all these things followed, some by plan, some serendipitous. Right. At the root of it, the reason I did so much was because of what I learned from horses and in the rewards from work and putting in the effort and the time with horses. So you started in medical school, right? Radiology? Well, yeah, I went, to, of course, I went to University of Virginia because I, that's a horse, horse country. Right. And of course, the Red Rider from Virginia, we're talking about Rodney Jenkins. Did. Anyway, from University of Virginia, went to medical school. Now, plan, serendipitous, the oldest son in an Italian family, both parents of whom are doctors, and one mother who taught at a medical school. Ah. Uh. Now, do you think I was going to medical school? So, <laughs> You know, that was the pathway. So, yes, I went there. And I, fascinating, you know, again, wearing that, finish that, did your surgery, mm-hmm. where I learned a lot about myself and about people and about healthcare, mm-hmm. and did radiology residency, mm-hmm. and uh, finished that. And started working in, in radiology, but that was kind of phase one of my life. Of course, in the undercurrents, there were the horses in the background. That was always there as a presence, right? Yeah, more or less, either actively competing, uh, being involved in the administration, uh, family members ride, even today that those things pertain. Mm -hmm. Was the pharma family business at that point? No, my parents were working. Uh, I would say this, our operation was probably the first professional amateur operation. Okay. Okay, and I would say I was probably the first amateur. Mm Mm-hmm to go on a European tour. By amateur, I mean someone who owned their own horse. Right. Absolutely. So you developed your uh, law career and... Well, that was an interesting story on that since you're going there, okay? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, I, I did medicine and, and I will tell you my father had always... We're talking now the 80s. Mm-hmm. You may not be old enough to remember, but the, the Clinton Healthcare Initiative, thing, there were things were shifting in healthcare. And here's was someone who was a radiologist, established, said, you know, if you really want to go in medicine, you really have to think about getting a master's in public health, a law degree, something, because medicine's changing. And I kept saying, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. Anyway, my situation opened up where I all felt found myself single in 86. 87, I should say, and was working at the radiology practice. There were problems with the contract dispute, Medicare. And I said to my dad, do you remember you once said about Wall Street? This was December. I took the LICT in February and September of 88. I started Wall Street. My goodness. Now, I worked part-time, but I phased out. And I will tell you, I'm glad I did it. Full stop. Whenever you've worked a real job going back to school, for me anyway, he's cake. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, again, no, the work is hard. I don't mean it that way. You only have your individual performance that you're focusing on as opposed to a team issue and things of that nature. Right. Anyway, uh, graduated law school. And from there, pretty much I've had an opportunity to work in medicine all the time. I deal with medical topics. I'm so lucky because I get to think about the medicine I talk about. Yeah. Most clinicians today in practice are so busy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I've been involved in, in healthcare and medical malpractice work. I provide, the biggest thing I provide to clients, whether we take a case or not, is understanding as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Because in today's medical world, docs don't have time or people don't have the time to hear in that brief moment the full implications or understanding of what their situation is in there and the, the likely paths forward and, you know, general statistics. Mm-hmm. Okay? We all like to look at things with rosy-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. And whether you're patient or doctor, that's the way you present it. That's the way you hear it at first. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, a lot of times people are unaware of things that may or may not have anything to do with the quality of care, but just general. So I try to provide some peace of mind. Right. Is that when you decided to sort of not branch off, but offer an alternative direction in terms of litigation for equestrians? Interesting. You know, if you do something long enough, you learn a few things. Mm-hmm. The only thing I probably did more than law and medicine is horses. 
and over the years been involved in one way or another, I'm talking about 20 years ago, in legal matters that dealt with equestrian, litigation over the sale of a horse, a rule violation someone's dealing with. And over that time, you learn a few things because I was paying attorneys. And then I kind of, you know, eventually, you know, I'm an attorney now, I'm five to 10 years out, I'm going, you know something? I can really help because I have the vertical knowledge. No mm -hmm. offense. You got to talk horse if you're going to deal with horse. It's not like a car with a green book. They're not like widgets. They're all the same. There's the horse in particularities. Vetting, as you know, or if you've had, if you've had a horse, a horse can vet clean and go lame the next, next week. Yeah. And some horses don't have very good x-rays. Wow, and I've won a lot of classes on them and never had a problem. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, with horses, I got involved in the legal side, more to counsel when I can. Okay. I do litigate and help people with some trans you know, transactional issues. But I find more often than not, it's, it's talking through what I see as the options. Mm -hmm. And if they want to pay me by the hour, fine. But generally speaking, that's not my main bread and butter job. Right. If I can help people resolve a problem, if somebody needs litigation and defense, and it's in my jurisdiction, I'm absolutely glad to do it. If not, there's a network of people that I trust that I can refer them to. Mm -hmm. I, I've lived long enough in the horse world, made enough of my own mistakes, seen enough of other people's mistakes, uh, and understand the law enough that, and in some ways it's very similar to what I do in the malpractice world. Because at the end of the day, the health of the horse the behavior of the horse is as much of an issue as the physical horse. Yeah. Right? So all those pieces, uh, it's not so simple. If a horse doesn't go well after a purchase, there can be a lot of reasons for it. Yeah. It may or may not be something that's actionable or not. I try to help people in situations the best I can from the benefit of my past experience. Yeah. What aspect do you enjoy the most about law, particularly in the equestrian field? I'll tell you what I enjoyed the most in the legal equestrian world. I had an opportunity to sit on the FBI tribunal mm -hmm. for eight years. And I was humbled by that experience and then all of the work, having seen it on the inside, that they do for the sport. And let me separate out the FBI tribunal from the FBI the Jumping Rider Society, the National Federations. These are a group of distinguished legal attorneys, judges, who volunteer their time because they have a common passion and love for equestrian and sport. Fairness in play, welfare of the horse, and integrity of the system. And in that situation, there are rules, whether they're drug rules, abuse rules, qualification rules, whatever. And you always have the, you're balancing the interests of the rights of the athlete versus the interest of the sport and the rules. And most of them come from a, what we call it, a civil law jurisdiction. We have common law, or we're the English system. But I had the opportunity to serve people from the Scandinavian countries, uh, from the continent from New Zealand, all over Canada. And being on that body, you, you, you have to make decisions to balance and keep the sport's integrity intact. And sometimes things are not always as they appear. Mm -hmm. and sometimes there are political pressures if there's an appearance of, say, uh, an abusive situation, but you, when you really look, you know, peel back the onion, it wasn't quite that. And have the courage to strike what you feel is the fair balance in terms of the penalty. Whether that's against public policy or not, or whether it's something the rider wants or not, based on the horse, the sport, and the athlete. And doing that was really a remarkable uh, experience. Not sorry that I'm done with it, but I thought that was one of the biggest contributions I, I made from a, a sport perspective. And that hopefully some of my this, the decisions I participated in helped to keep the sport moving forward in the right direction. It's interesting that you bring up the tribunal because I had some specific thoughts on that. And 
just going to ad lib here. Recently, uh, a big topic for us has been cannabis and the use of recreational drugs in the industry. And I think that that's probably something that the FEI tribunal has dealt with in the past. What are your thoughts on that? Like, what's your take on the use of recreational drugs such as cannabis, you know, and competing at the FEI level? Okay. First of all, and this is not a dodge, not the FEI tribunal's call. Gotcha. Thank you. We have to follow water. Right. The World Anti-Doping Association, our penalty structure for humans, when I say our, I'm not, it's not me anymore, forgive me. The FBI medication rules for horses are one set and for athletes are another. Our athlete rules have to be consistent as much as possible with the, the water, okay? And that's what held to that standard. Mm-hmm. So as to the FBI tribunal, that's not our call. Are they influential at all? No, not not as far as water goes. That's a different level. Mm-hmm. And if the FBI tribunal either underpenalizes or overpenalizes an athlete on any medication violation, that's appealable to the court of arbitration of sport. So there's an appellate level above us, to which I say, in some situations, as someone who was an attorney a horseman and a sportsman. There are sometimes I made the call that I felt had to be made, regardless of the politics of it. And you know something? If you're going to appeal it and go up one level, if I have to be on the wrong side, I want to be on this wrong side, not that wrong side. Right. I probably went a little far there, but did a back to cannabis. Now, I would say this. If a rider has a therapeutic use exemption, you apply to the FBI. You're an asthmatic. You take a certain steroid. You're a doctor, whatever. You can apply to the FBI with a doctor's certificate for a therapeutic use exemption. Okay? Okay. That's kind of a sidestep because it doesn't really address recreational. However, mm-hmm. where do you draw the line? Because for instance, Canada is not in the Olympics coming up because a rider tested positive with coca. Mm-hmm. I feel terrible. But I understand that It's a system. It's a system and it's the way it has to be. And there's, uh, there's takeaways from it and there's things to be learned. And here's the thing you learn. And this is sometimes difficult for people to wrap their heads around initially. Even if the rider was sabotaged, the result still has to be thrown out. Right. Because it can affect performance. Right. So if you have it in there and there's a potential for performance enhancement, the result has to be nullified. Even if we say, you know something, you absolutely, there's no penalty, there's nothing wrong. It's almost two separate issues. I mean, the result needs to be nullified and then the an alternative issue needs to be dealt with. I, again, I can't get into specifics, especially in the case that I wasn't involved in. Yeah. But that's, that's at the bottom one, that's the thing. Yeah. I was going to ask you what your personal uh, opinion on that was, but I think you probably offered it. <laughs> well, well, I would tell you this, though, for instance. What do you do when, for instance, Two days ago, New Jersey legalized uh, marijuana. Well, exactly. And that's, I think, why I was interested in bringing it up. I mean, it's decriminalized in places and it's legal in places and it's used for medicinal purposes. And there's so many different layers and levels that it's at some point you'd think that these organizations are going to have to become a little more open minded or accepting or at least address it, just address it. At the risk of going out onto ice, I've not been out on before. Okay. What would happen if a rider had a, three beers at lunch? And, oh, they, they got to go back in the ring for whatever, something. Not maybe necessarily a great tactical thing, but they go in. They win. You get disqualified for alcohol? Right. I don't know. I, I, I get it. I, I should know. Maybe I should have known. I don't know. And I put that. So I don't know. With legal, certain legal things like that, how do you deal with it? Well, it's true. And it's what we go through here. So it's a little bit the same argument here. If you have three beers and get in your car and drive, it's not legal to do that. It's the same if you have some cannabis and then get in your car and drive. That's not legal. But in other situations, it seems to be fine. So it's very gray. It's always a, an interesting conversation. I'm neither here nor there for it. I, I'm not going to offer an opinion, actually. But it's always just an interesting topic. It's a sort of a hot topic and an interesting conversation. There's so many sides to it. I'm a complete supporter of Queen Sport, mm-hmm. but you have the inadvertent contaminations or the people that 
where, where you know, we're on a weekend or somewhere and and they get some substance into their body. Maybe not even that they ingested it, but not that they test positive on the nanogram level. Yeah. But hey, that's life. Yeah. Not clean and neat all the time. So then another topic that might be a little controversial, but I'm going to ask it anyways. The, the introduction of social media into sport and things like the FEI tribunal is the presence of social media. Do you feel like that has an impact on opinions, decisions, thoughts of those groups? I don't think you can say social media affects a question any different than any other part of our world. Okay. So you kind of put me asking me the question of my thoughts on social media and where its benefits and excesses are in some regards. My biggest concern in the horse world is snippets of video can be obtained because everybody's got smartphones yeah. and puts it up there. And just like you've seen in our own political world, you know, you see the 10 seconds, but you didn't see the whole piece. You don't know how bad it really got mm -hmm. or really what was the situation. I think, unfortunately, when you deal with animals, and I'll broaden this out a little bit, if you don't know animals sometimes, it's hard to understand the necessary discipline from what may appear har overly harsh. Right. An example, for instance, I'll give a very good example. If, I, hypothetically, I have a four-year-old stallion or a stallion at a show or at a fair or someplace, and I'm leading them somewhere, okay, or I'm on it, and a couple of ponies start coming up over there, this is a potentially dangerous situation. At the risk of getting into trouble, I'm, if I'm on it, I'm turning my stick up, yeah. and I'm growling, and I'm dripping him just right in my, you, you, my face. I'm right in his face. Because that stallion can jump over nine feet to the side on top of that kid or that pony before you can spit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, somebody see a video. They ain't see the pony. A video of me. Stick up. My God. He's a, he's a maniac. Look yeah. at that. But again, you have to understand the context. Yeah. There's many examples of one could go into, but the horse, well, that's, that's one. Yeah, no, it's a perfect example, actually. And it's sort of what I was leading into, I suppose. It, it seems sometimes like social media and those platforms don't always allow for the big picture, which is to your point. There's a lot more context than necessarily meets the eye. That issue applies across everything. Right, exactly. And that's, that's the world now. That's how we need to manage within the world, right? I've often thought, and again, I'm at my age, I'm not Oh, you're a cool fitty guy. I I'm sorry. As between injury to this, I'll, I've got to act where I have to act. Absolutely. It's responsible. Yeah. So I'm going to touch on your past a little bit uh, when it comes to the equestrian industry. You're, you know, back in the. That covers a lot. I know, but back in the 70s and 80s, I wasn't going to throw 70s in there, but I thought, well, I'll just throw it in. But let's say back in the 80s, when you and your brothers took center stage as the Leon brothers, did you find that you were often compared to one another? Yes. We were, we were so different, though. You're, you're all fairly close in age, right? Fairly, yeah, fairly close. I'm like years. 70 to 63, right? We're about, you know, I'm about two and a half, and it's about a year and a half now. Yeah. You know, it's funny. This isn't exactly what you were asking, but I'm going, to t I'm going to take this as an opportunity. Yes, please do. One of the big lessons riding with your brothers and horses taught me. Or understand, you're a family. So we got three horses. And so I'm going to two horses. Mm -hmm. Mom's going to get one for, you, one for you and one for me. And I happen to ride one way because I'm a little bigger and this and that. And, ride, and you happen to ride another way because of your personality and you train another way. And your horse isn't going as well. I want to tell you how you should do it. Okay? And bottom line is, riding becomes like religion. Yeah. The bit you use, your training method, the way you like to do it. And what I learned, if you want to focus on differences, you'll you just go nowhere. Yeah. 
I learned religious tolerance because there are many ways to do things as long as you're internally consistent. Yeah. Whether you go from the professional hormone to the, the Monty Roberts to all the da 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 da, if you're internally consistent in your approach and you develop that relationship with the horse, you can be successful. Your particular methodology may not, well, there's commonality for sure. We got to be able to rob, we got to do that. However, and I have to respect that. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me my opinion or my thought, I, I will offer what I think. Otherwise, I'm there to, what can I do for you? Do you need to do that? Because if, if, as a family, as brothers, if we did not work together, my father would have sold all the horses. Oh, yeah. And we loved the horses too much to let that happen. So we sucked it up and we learned to keep our mouths shut. Mm-hmm. Until asked. <laughs> <laughs> we were compared against each other. In some ways, Mark was, was the more natural. Okay. Peter was the more technically and mentally correct. Uh, I guess I was more kind of somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. The risk taker. I was the farmer. I only rode my last year of juniors in the quote top equitation in that, you know, Edward George level, Morris stuff. Yep. So my development as a rider really occurred before that. Mm-hmm. I am interested or I'm curious to know if you and your brother is if you're competitive by nature. For sure. Yeah. Not so much now, but sure. However, it's all relative. First is someone from the family wins the class, and then who beat who within the matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want obviously, you know, you, you know, you're the team team placing first, so to speak. So who put the highest peg on, and then from there. Yeah, it's relative. How would you describe the feel of the equestrian sport in the '70s and '80s? If you had to pick one word to describe the feel of it. It was camaraderie and muddy boots and honest, honest horse boots. Do you feel like there's been a change over the years? Sure. I, look, whether good or bad, from my perspective, it's a change that's not so good. But change is change. Yeah. It's definitely different. Yeah. I would say this. Fewer riders today have had the benefit of, of a Thelwell pony. Yeah. Okay, that's one. Oh, sorry. Few of the right at the top level now have had the benefit of the Thelwell pony. Few of the riders today have had to ride some not so nice horses for a while and make do with it. Yeah. Okay. The reason I say that, and it's worth commenting, I don't care if you buy a $5,000 horse or a $5 million horse. Something's going to happen with that $5 million horse when they're totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. Where if you don't have the instinct in you from having ridden the $5,000 horse, you did it a lot. Mm-hmm. You can't intervene quickly enough to prevent something from happening to either shatter the horse's mental confidence or physically hurt it. It's in between two oxes, a horse, well, they're going to make single one straight oxes anymore, double oxes, but in the old days. <laughs> in between a, a, a wide oxes, a horse for some reason hangs up. Okay, over the first one, the some of the worst, if not the worst, well, one of the worst falls I've seen is, especially with a young rider, a horse comes in and they, they the rider questions whether the horse is going to make it, and instead of saying committed and riding forward as hard as they can, the horse tries, but the rider gives up, mm. and now the horse has no chance. Yeah, that's scary. Okay. But if you've not ridden horses in the past and had another instinct to go to the stick and to understand what we're dealing with, and you hesitate, mm-hmm. you have a problem. Yeah. Not that you're going to make it out clean if you kick in right away and use your stick and drive forward and growl and we'll get through, which means you don't have to jump it again. That's right. And you got the safe way. That's an interesting point. Maybe not clean, but alive is always a plus in, in the direction you want to be in. Here's, for instance, and this is no joke. Yeah. I can tell you of several combinations in the 70s and 80s where no one really, I'm not worried about jumping it clean. Mm. I want to get through it. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what to this day, the Birch triple combination in JFK Stadium in Philadelphia for the Gold Cup. 
It sticks with you. It, are you damn right it sticks with me. Okay? <laughs> Bill Birch with Bush and Bert was building it. It was like, okay, again, that concept is far into today. I, I mean, my show jump is my sport, okay? So, but that company's far into today's show jumpers. Mm -hmm. It's all poles. But look, it's not, I'm not saying it's easy. No. Nope. But instead of playing a piano with eight octaves, from the three day to the Grand Prix to the speed, we're not playing eight octaves, we're only playing five octaves. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. I never thought of it that way. Head out the chat courage jumps, mm -hmm. head out the natural jumps. We've cut out the, you know, stuff that was part of the course for us. Mm -hmm. Okay. But most riders today, most trainers and pretty much most of the riders don't know how to teach a horse how to jump double ditches, big double waters. Uh, again, most, I didn't say all. Yep. And how to train a rider and how to train a horse to do it. Do you think that, that the change in, I guess, the type of obstacles that are offered at equestrian competitions, do you think that's affected bravery for riders and horses? Well, the answer is, forgive me for saying this, I'm sure riders today go into some of the ranks and <laughs> are scared as shit. I get it. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, but for different reasons. Yeah. Horses, for instance, are, let's remember something. This sport came out of the cavalry. And we decided that it was a military occupation for a horse. And war was inhumane to humans as well as horses. Mm -hmm. However, coming back from the front line, jumping the ditches, the fences, getting back, okay, boom. All of those pieces was the fundamental. The dressage was the parade. The jumping was kind of the competition stuff, right? Then, of course, you had the three-day grew out of that and our three-day competitions. And Grand Prix jumping was really, you had eventing over here, dressage over here, and jumping kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. A jumper needs more control than the eventing horse to jump the courses. But doesn't need as much control as the dressage horse to be able to perform all of those actions. Right. Okay. But we've taken away that other end. And since it's not in the competition today, people and horses don't have to be competent in order to do it. Right. But some of the best events, you talked about the 70s, the American Jumping Derby, mm -hmm. the American Gold Cup. Okay. These types of events, Tampa Invitational. Mm -hmm. I did go to that once. We would go the night before, go up in the stands and look at it. And there these huge jobs. I mean, they, they, these were big jumps, okay? Now, the good and the bad news. You can ride at them pretty hard, okay? Bad news is you can hang up on them. However, we didn't have just courage jumps in our day. We had the three-rail skinny white jump. We had the plank on the flat cup. But it was three or four jumps in the, in the course. Right. Now, jumping a difficult, careful jump, if all the jumps are careful, it's difficult, but not that difficult. Mm -hmm. I drive you over a, a triple bar over a big water to a wall and then turn you onto a little skinny style. That's brave. From a horse perspective, it's a change. Mm -hmm. Big change. It's a passing game to a running game. Because there are more octaves, it's tougher to get down to a low note or a high note if you're at the other end of the scale. Yeah, for sure. If that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, for sure. I don't say it's easy today at all. It's a difficult sport. It's a different sport. It's different, exactly. So if you could sum up the feel of the equestrian industry today in one word, what would that be? It's industrial. Yes. You have competitions that go for 15, 16, 20 weeks at a time. Yeah. You know, it kills me because I got to tell you, one of the things I enjoyed competing when we did, and I'm so thankful for when I was able to do it. Each week, you go to a different place, different ring, different fence, different food. Well, maybe different people a little bit too. You know, in Florida, let's take Florida Circuit. When it started, I was able to go to school and compete at the Florida Circuit. Mm -hmm. It was a total of about six weeks with a practice show in the front. Started it. Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there was a little schooling show in Jacksonville. The next week you had the Jacksonville show. And then the AGA Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. Then you went to Ocala. Yeah. Then you went to Palmetto, which then became Tampa. That's right. Yep. Two weeks there, though. Invitation, you're done. 
So it wasn't that long. You didn't need to have a house there. You didn't need to have a barn there. Matter of fact, you couldn't because you were, you were over there for a week. Yeah. And then the show would, would start to come north. The Georgia, South Carolina shows, different flavor. Yeah. And then it would come further north in the spring. You'd get up here into the northeast. Again, those migrations would occur similarly in Texas through you know the Midwest up north. Yeah. That was a beautiful thing. And it, and it spread things out. Now, you know, you have Walmart and Nordstrom's. Yeah, absolutely. So that for me is a shame. I actually have been very lucky. My youngest son has started riding a little bit. So we're doing the local equitation, you know, the you know children's jumper, the limit equitation. So we're doing getting to put the horse on the truck and go to a one-day show. That's cool. It's fun. It's fun. Cost me maybe 600 bucks, 400 bucks. Kid has a blast. You know, they learn as much from the stop in the ring there as they do in the big ring somewhere else. And basics. They learn basics and camaraderie and a lot of skills that you wouldn't learn otherwise. That's great. I'm lucky in that. But, you know, I think there needs to be kind of more of that, which you kind of, uh, you seem to like these controversial topics. So I'm I'll sorry. Slide, I'll slide to one, which takes me to the mileage rule. Oh, yeah. As someone who has no axe to grind in this game, mm-hmm. I'm not really showing that much. I don't take auto horse on the road. I don't run any shows. This COVID has been a very interesting thing because the shows are still surviving. Even after the, I don't think the mileage rule is really playing. I've been following it closely, but you know, when people can't move as much, you know, you're seeing more shows. Again, I think the mileage rule is outdated mm-hmm. because ultimately it's a horse show horse show managers organization that still runs it. Mm-hmm. So by that, at the end of the day, the Federation gets so much of its revenue from say the winter equestrian festival mm-hmm. from hits from that by necessity, when your largest customers have vested interest, you have to at least be careful that you don't disrupt the sport, you know, to their uh, detriment. Mm-hmm. So this whole structure was built up. Why originally it was for awards and stuff like that, I get it. Again, it's become industrial. USCF, I've got to give you an example. Please do. We are a bureaucracy now in our equestrian federation. Okay. Doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. But I was lucky enough to be involved in the international sports with the USCT, particularly in the 90s. Five to 2000, whatever. USET, United States Equestrian Team was a small focus group. I'll call it like a SWAT team or a SEAL team, as opposed to the police force and the military. Our job was finding, training, selecting, supporting, and getting the right horses to the games and that could win medal. As I first got into it, this was kind of very orchestrated, and I'll say in a patriarchal way, where there was a coach absolutely picked everything about that. God, there's still people today that go on subjective, objective, whatever. We have this weird mix. But really where I want to go is we traded a certain nimbleness of organization. I remember one evening at dinner having pizza being called by Jim Wolf, that one of the eventing horses that had an extra spot on the plane. It was an alternate market. Really like him to go. Technically, he's not on. We have the extra money in there. They're leaving in two hours. Can we do it? Jim, does Mark want it? Yeah, do it. Yeah. Done. I think that horse won him out. I forget. It. We're going way back. Right. But my point is, this wasn't, let's get the committee together. That, 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 all week. This, yeah, well, this, and this, this one's going to sue that. You got it done. The bureaucracy gets in the way of decision making sometimes. Yeah. So, again, very fortunate to have been able to be part of some of those things, you know? Well, revolutionizing the industry, really, and helping develop it. A little bit I'm going to say the game also was, today you need horses and riders to be right at the top all the time, banging it. They've got to be in the top top four, three, two, boom, consistently, right? Numbers of horses down, depth in the whole nine yards. I get it. But back then, there weren't quite as many good horses. Mm. And so you were really working with an individual rider, sometimes one rider, one horse, to get them to peak right. in a certain place, which took a certain amount of faith, right? Because well, what, how, how many classes have you won in the last three months? Well, no, no, we're not doing that. We're trying to get this horse who's 
you know, maybe has a little soundless issue, or is a little green, I got it. So that's the horseman part that I think has been washed out uh, and traded off for, you know, show me the bottom line. Yeah. So what change would you advocate most for? Take the money out of the sport. The money. We used to go to a one-day show. You'd have three overfensive classes and a hack in the junior hunters. Mm-hmm. The first two classes, the regular classes, maybe you got 40 bucks for first. Right. You won your entry fee back. Right. And the stake was a $200 class. You got 150 for Okay, great. You got a championship. Okay. But I wasn't paying an arm and a leg. The prices of horses have gone up because the purses have gone up. Yeah. Just like the price of college has gone up because more loans and more money is available. So supply side demand. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem is, is at the end of the day, that's not the gold in the horse sports. The gold in the horse sports is you and the horse. And it's so easy to lose sight of that for the ribbon, for the being up in the private tents or the, you know, with the catered. Go in the back and take your horse out, you know, just do with your horse. Take your horse from the bottom up again. Now, there are some riders that do that. I don't, I'm not, I, I'm not saying everybody, but For sure. too, it's too easy to fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. The biggest one, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. Nobody today rides in chaps. Full chaps. Full chaps. Oh, you're not from Canada. Well, I do. <laughs> and I still ride in chaps. And you know why you ride in chaps as kids? Because you're working at the barn. Yeah. You're goofing, hey, you're doing this, you're doing so. You really want to do it in boots and britches? Oh, it's your time to ride. Okay, put your chaps on, your boots, and you go ride. And then you take your chaps off and you go back and you wash the horse off or you do the work. If you want to work in a barn, I'm sorry, my wife, the British girls love to wear the job boots. And that's their shit. Yep. The boots and britches and real dirt, sorry, barn work, mucking out the shed, that doesn't fly. No. So again, as kids, we had the barn. We took care of our ponies. I could braid my horse and blah, blah, blah. It wore jeans because that's, first of all, I didn't want to go to town with britches. Just, as, you know, that's the old days, right? They're like pantyhose. Right, right. <laughs> but long story short, though, and I say this, the biggest problem is, is if you can, we can't do heavy barn work in britches. Right. And that's why I like chaps because God, wear your jeans. When you got to ride, put your chaps on, go ride and pin them off and help out. Yeah, Absolutely. So this is a, we could do a commercial for full chaps nowadays. Everybody needs to switch back to full chaps. We're reaching out for the sponsors. Graham Nicholson, we're coming after you, buddy. <laughs> I don't think there's that many people that make them anymore. You know, there is actually a gentleman, in all honesty, uh, a gentleman in Canada, Graham Nicholson. He made me my first pair of chaps when I was 14. It was only like five years ago, I might say. But he is still going strong. And he custom makes them with the needlepoint uh, name on the back and you can get the fringe and all that stuff. And I'm an advocate. I love the look. I love the feel. And absolutely, I love the function of them. They're much more functional than people actually remember. They're a working rider. Yeah, exactly. And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show, our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado... I bring you the what's and why's for your listening pleasure. Who do you look up to and why? I have to break that down. I'm gonna, I think we're going to talk horse. I'd rather talk horses because obviously I could talk about family member of this or that and or in medicine or law or whatever. But I have to put it this way. I have to, it's a two for answer. The two people who taught me one had a friend a horse and how to let the horse do the work. The first was Sullivan Davis, who was a black horseman who really taught me from ages nine to about 17. I went to George. And Dave was a New Jersey horseman here. There was a couple, Walter White. And he used to do saddle horses. Saddle horses, Arabians, Morgans, but also hunters and jumpers. And he won a class at the garden, the, the, the high jump with his horse Liberty Bell. But anyway... This is, we're talking now early 70s and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave was a horseman. And he taught me how to befriend a horse. He was the one who, when my parents went and got those three ponies I told you about. Mm-hmm. We're nine, big seven and six, something like that. They got a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old, and a three-year-old was in full. My God. <laughs> well, he, 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 
Hand halter to lunge to long line to break the cart with the foal. How to do the foal? How to teach him to jump? How to teach him to ride? And then eventually we got a horse, and he did our first little bits with horses. And I I did horses with him, so I didn't come from a traditional occupation background. But anyway, what Dave taught me about how to talk with a horse, feel with a horse, read them, enjoy them. Has always been very special to me, and to this day, I, I look up to him. Matter of fact, I only have one portrait painting of a person other than myself, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a Dave. I don't even have it on my one, anyway. But that will change, that has to change. It has to change. Uh, the other point is so, Dave taught me to befriend a horse and understand a horse, and then there was all the middle the George, the Bert, the this, the training around. Mm -hmm. okay. That's technical. But the other person who really opened my eyes and I admire great, and I thank to this day, is Frank Chappelle. Mm, an amazing, amazing man. Because Frank, we can get all twisted up on my pinky here and this there, and I should do this, and who feels that? Frank approaches an athlete as a coach and an athlete. Okay, But his biggest thing was, let me tell you something. Stay out of the horse's way and he'll do the job. Mm. That horse can see that distance better than any time. That horse knows where he is more, before you know where he is. Mm -hmm. You get a system with your horse where your horse understands what the game is and what you want. Mm -hmm. Now let him do it. Frank, in other words, this and why I love it, especially when I got a little older. Forget, you know, getting the perfect distance on the perfect stride. No, that's not life. Watch your horse run across the field. Yep. All set and jump. Think of the gem twist. Laura Chapeau. Mm -hmm. Wonderful rider. But her horses work for her. Okay? Not McLean and Beasy are different types of riders. Okay? Precision. And that's great. However, the horse has to subvert the personality to you. Mm-hmm. And the other one, you subvert your personality to the horse. Right. It makes me think of Mr. Delaire and Snowman. Okay. Right. I'm with, you know, again, Harry had his peculiar way of doing it, but I'm with you. Mm -hmm. And so, wow, it's really nice at my age where I go in the ring. Okay, Pony, let's go. You know, he understands the game. And sometimes you're a little long. Sometimes you're a little short. It shouldn't be a surprise to either of you. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, those two on the front end and the back end of my careers really gave me the most enjoyment. And I look up to them and I thank them for what they did, they did for me. For sure. What's something that brings you joy and why? Wow. Beside the kids. Okay. Well, I'll back it up. One, the first thing that really, and this is kind of similar, is when you see that light go on in the horse you're working with. When that horse all of a sudden buys in and now you're the two of you are greater than the sum of them. Of the parts. Probably the same, or maybe even greater, is that every now a couple of times I've seen my kids like go on when he's riding a horse that he's figured out something underneath there. You know? That has to be a cool feeling, a, a proud moment. Yeah. My two oldest kids didn't ride. Uh, maybe good, maybe bad. Right. So it took to the last one. I can't really teach my kid how to tip a soccer player or. Across, other than you know drills and working hard like I did, but I don't have any special insider talent. But it's nice to be able to share that with them and and to tie all the way back in a sick way. <laughs> we we got some folds because remember I started with folds. Yeah, I somewhere got some folds. I fold. So my son got one and I got one, and he's had to work with it, and he's got bit every now and then, and I kind of oh well, kind of chuckle a little. Watch your fingers. <laughs> But you say, what gives you joy? Seeing him, you know, learn and that, that whole world of another being and, and a horse and a relationship. When you look back through your life, what decision brings you the most happiness and why? Marrying my wife, Allison. Well, everything else there forward couldn't have happened without her. Yeah. I am far from a perfect being. But yeah, I'm sorry. If you want to ask for the next best, then we can open it up a little bit. <laughs> What's something that you feel people get wrong about you and why? I think people think um, 
either very sophisticated or unapproachable or 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 the, I'm too busy to talk or to have time to do this or that. And if I ever acted like that 30 years ago or thought I was like that 30 years, I sure am not that. Right. Certainly now and for a while. It's very easy to get drunk on your thoughts of self-importance. And I'll come back to the horses. The traditional phrases don't read your own headlines. I believe that. The other thing is, you're only as good as the last horse you got off. Yeah. So I start every class from the in gate. Mm -hmm. So I guess in that regards, I, 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 I think people overestimate. I'm not an Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm not, you know, that's not, and I don't want to be. I want to contribute. I want to help when I can. And help doesn't always mean be nice. Sometimes, you know, if you got kids, you know that sometimes, you know, to be good, you got to be bad. Yeah. But I would say people overestimate my complexity. Right. So if you had your choice of anyone in the world, who would you want to hear on what's your why as a guest and why? I tell you who, if he was around, he's not. So I'm going to give a twofer. I always admired Billy Steinkraus. And both his dedication, his training, his intellect, his understanding of the horse. Mm -hmm. And I think he would be a fascinating person to talk to, but not possible. It's unfortunate that we can't, because I would love that opportunity. Yeah, the older horsemen, the people that made it possible. Paved the way. For so many people today to enjoy this sport, but also that this put this country in a place where it was at the top level of the sport. You got you to take the hat off to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A thousand times over. It was an absolute pleasure meeting you. I was uh, super excited. And the more, you know, I have to research a little bit here and there. And the more I learned about you, the more encouragement and excitement I got to actually meet you. You're a force. And I don't know what you're thinking about people being standoffish. And, you know, I'm going to give you a big old hug next time I bump into you. That's for sure. So remember this face because someone will be grabbing you out of the crowd. <laughs> well, I forward, when, we're, when we're back to a more normal times and we're traveling a little more, I absolutely look forward to it. And uh, I, I enjoyed this as well. And to tell you the truth, I didn't know exactly what I was going to say beforehand. So you've got it from the heart. Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a new podcast showcasing the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. <laughs>